Greetings, friends and brethren. This is Dr. Bob Teal to Continuing Church of God. Today I want to talk about things such as the original Catholic doctrines of the apostles, at least supposedly. What about the original way the liturgy or church services were set up? How about the, any creeds? What about uh, baptism? And what about Easter or Passover? Now, one of the reasons I'm doing this is it's consistent with a book that we've uh, put together, which is free, by the way, online, called Beliefs of the Original Catholic Church. A lot of people have their own ideas of what they believe the original uh, Christian church taught. Being raised Roman Catholic, I had certain ideas as well. And I've done more and more research looking into uh, early writings, early church writings, uh, Catholic encyclopedia, uh, and various things from Scripture. And I want to cover various things related to this. Anyway, there's different views of what happened with early church history. But, you know, what would be the basis of the true and original uh, Christian teachings, or uh, Catholic teachings, let's say, Catholic doctrines? The universally accepted doctrines of uh, the church? Well, obviously this would come from the teachings of Jesus, we would expect. Uh, his apostles, uh, what's in the Bible, and whatever the faithful disciples also believed. Now, as far as the Bible goes, I want to go to Second uh, Timothy chapter three, starting in verse sixteen. Now, throughout this uh, sermon, as well as a series talking about this particular book. Well, by the way, I forgot to mention it's available free at the www.ccog.org website. Click under uh, the literature tab under books and booklets and you'll find this. And it's free to read. We don't ask you for your email address or anything like that. When we mean free, it's, it's free. Anyway, uh, this is, is going to be from uh, the Orthodox uh, 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 Standard Bible. This is uh, Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, so translations are going to be from Roman Catholic sources or Eastern Orthodox Catholic uh, sources. Anyway, here's what it says. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, if you've got a New King James Version of the Bible, We'll see the same thing here because uh, the OSB used the uh, New King James for the New Testament. But again, it's uh, acceptable translation as far as the uh, Eastern Orthodox go. Well, anyway, obviously, Scripture is to be the source to learn doctrine and to be complete. Now, furthermore, in addition to Scripture, we can also look into uh, early literature to show how people who were familiar with Koine Greek, the language of the New Testament, understood the doctrines. And if the early writer was faithful, uh, his writings, and I said his because we do not have any really early writings from women, uh, should give us support. However, if an early writer makes statements that are in conflict with Scripture, we can conclude it was not an original Christian or Catholic belief, even if many believed in it based on various writings, and we've covered this before, and it's covered in this book, the original Catholic Church was the Church of God in Smyrna of Asia Minor. Hence, teachings 
of leaders affiliated with or true communion with that church helped demonstrate what the original Catholic beliefs were. Yet, because early apostates and heretics sometimes had contact with the apostles and or some of, their, some of the earlier successors of the apostles, uh, sometimes some of their writings can give us a clue into original doctrine, as long as they're not in conflict with uh, sacred scripture, the Holy Bible. Now that being said, there's a third century document apparently originating in Syria. It's called the Didascalia Apostolorum. And it purports to lay out Catholic doctrine. Again, it's from the third century. It purports to be earlier than that, but here's what it says. God's planting and the holy vineyard of his Catholic church, the elect who rely on the simplicity of the fear of the Lord. Here, the Didascalia of God, you that hope and wait for his promises, which hath been written after the command of our Savior and is in accord with his glorious words. Now the term Didascalia basically means the teachings of the Twelve. In this case, it's claiming what Jesus commanded the Twelve Apostles. But the assertion in this document is false from the start. I want to read something from the Catholic Encyclopedia about it. It says, a treatise which pretends to have been written by the apostles at the time of the Council of Jerusalem, Acts 15, but really is a composition of the 3rd century. The full title given in Syriac is Didascalia, that is, the Catholic doctrine of the Twelve Apostles and the Holy Disciples of the Lord, end quote. Continuing the Catholic Encyclopedia. The place of the composition was Syria, though what part cannot be determined. The author was apparently a bishop, and presumably a Catholic. His book is badly put together without logic. That's from the Catholic Encyclopedia article on the Didascalia. Now, so we see that that is a fraudulent document from a Greco-Roman Catholic bishop somewhere in Syria, and it's because the fact that bishops or pastors in Syria, Antioch, etc., that come past Serapia of Antioch, who was a Church of God leader, on the succession list from the Orthodox Antiochian uh, Church, uh, were not faithful, so we don't use uh, their, li their list. You know, uh, we've got various things on apostolic succession lists, and I'll cover those in a future sermon, but we've concluded frequently that when we look at writings from the Greco-Roman churches, or the succession lists, they have true faithful people at the beginning. Okay. We, Continuing Church of God, certainly believe that uh, 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 the apostles Peter, Paul, and John were faithful, and they're in various lists of various ones, and some people who are not mentioned in Scripture, including some who were like, let's say, Timothy, were faithful. But some who aren't were also faithful, but at some point in time, apostasy hit various areas, and unfaithful leaders uh, ended up on lists from the, the Greco-Romans. And again, in Antioch, this is why after Serapion of Antioch, who was killed around 211 AD, we don't accept any of their leaders. And we've got an admission from the Catholic Encyclopedia that was one of their leaders. We don't know which one. We don't know if it was in Antioch, but uh, it was in Syria. 
put together a fraudulent document and lied where, about where it came from. So in the Didascalia, we see an appropriation of the term Catholic, which is again not a reference to Rome. Now Syria is next to Asia Minor, and since Asia Minor was using the term Catholic, the writer of this fraudulent document apparently decided he could use it as well, or he should use it as well. Now no true Church of God leader would have written such a document and claim it was at the command of Jesus when it was not. Now, there's another problem. The Didascalia states, but the Sabbath itself is counted even unto the Sabbath, and it became becomes eight days. Thus, an Agdoad is reached, which is more than the Sabbath, even the first of the week. Now, most of you are probably not familiar with the term Agdoad, but that's a pagan Gnostic concept, which is in this writing from this Greco-Roman Catholic bishop. And nor do we see anything in the Bible transferring the seventh-day Sabbath to anything in the Bible which is called the eighth day. It simply isn't there. Another problem with this Didascalia is that it often cites the false gospel of Peter. Now, I mentioned Serapion of Antioch. He was a Church of God leader, and he denounced this false gospel of Peter. Now, he, Serapion is considered to be a saint by the Greco-Roman Catholics, and by us in Church of God. And the Greco-Roman Catholics did, for a time, take or accept the false gospel of Peter. But uh, Church of God people did not. As a matter of fact, when Serapion visited a group, he was invited to speak somewhere, he thought they were part of the true faith. And then he saw they were quoting, reciting, the, uh, reading the uh, false gospel of Peter. And he said, okay, you're not, you're not with us. So that should be obvious. Anyway, Serapion had denounced this particular uh, false gospel of Peter prior to the writing of the Didascalia, as far as I can tell. Uh, people are when I've looked into when this was written, the Didascalia, probably around 230, 240, uh, depending on which source you look at. But again, no one's absolutely certain. But again, this is after Serapion, so this particular leader was not consistent with Serapion, who was a Church of God leader. So because of that, obviously the Didascalia, despite the fact it says it's the, it has the original Catholic doctrine in it, it simply does not. We need to be wary false documents they're supposedly used to establish original Catholic doctrine, especially when those documents are in conflict with Scripture. Now, what about the Apostles' Creed? <clears throat> Years ago, an Eastern Orthodox supporter wrote to me, and she claimed that something from either 5th or 6th century was an original Christian belief. I told her it was not. And she responded to me by listing what's called the Nicene Creed as to what the Orthodox believed. And she asked me sarcastically if that was original enough. And I said no, because that was a late 4th century document and it was not from the original apostles. 
So do not think that the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles called the Apostles' Creed, was the original document. It was originally from the Apostles. It simply was not. And even though, as a Roman Catholic, I was taught some version of the Nicene Creed, and I can still recite parts of it from memory, the reality is the Church of Rome concurs. It says that's not the original creed, or the oldest known one. Now, I'm going to give a translation of what Rufinus, who was a uh, uh, Greco-Roman priest, he put together, and this is called the Old Roman Form. And here's what it says in the Catholic Encyclopedia, how it translates it. It has 12 statements. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. Well, we do that. And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. We believe that. Who was born of the Holy Spirit and of the Virgin Mary. We believe that. Crucified under Pontius Pilate and was buried. We believe that. Third day He rose again from the dead. We believe that. He ascended into heaven. We believe that. Number seven, sits at the right hand of the Father. We believe that. Number eight, whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe that. Number nine, and the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Yes, we believe God's got a Holy Spirit. God uses his Spirit. Ten, the Holy Church. We believe that. Eleven, the forgiveness of sins. Twelve, the resurrection of the body. Now, the Roman Catholic scholars recognize that the apostles did not come up with this. And, by the way, that was it. There's other statements that were added uh, that the uh, Greeks and Latins now use. Uh, but they think some of these statements came from some second century documents, but they absolutely were not written by the apostles. Basically, the legend says that the 12 apostles all one at a time said something, and that's what this became. But that's a legend, it's not a fact, and uh, Greco-Roman scholars realized that. They realized that, no, what happened was there were some writings in the 2nd century, 3rd century, some people put some stuff together, and they came up, they came up with it. Now, we in the Continuing Church of God don't have a creed per se, but we do have a statement of beliefs at the ccog.org website, and it explains how we understand various aspects of Scripture, and actually, since it's online, there are links. So if we talk about one doctrine or the other, you can click on that and read, read more about it. Now, nothing that's in the original creed is in conflict with what we teach. You know, for example, I mentioned the comment about uh, that says the Holy Church. Now, people in the Church of God aren't used to using that term, and sometimes they perhaps might recoil from it because the Greco-Roman churches use that a lot. But... The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5.27 said the church is holy. And actually the old radio church of God said God's church is a holy church. That's from an article from the late Dr. Herman Hay from 1953. Now, interestingly, I ran across something that's claimed to be the creed of Lucian of Antioch. Now, I mentioned Antioch and I mentioned Serapion. And so this gets a little complicated, but let me see if I, while I can explain this. The Antiochian Greek Orthodox Church has a list of people they claim to be their leaders. These go from uh, the Apostle Peter, by the way, it starts with Peter, uh, includes people like Ignatius, and it, goes, uh, it also includes Theophilus, 
again, these are Church of God uh, types or people. And it goes through a guy named Serapion, who is our guy. Then there's some other people who I'm not going to mention. Now, after the death or the martyrdom of Serapion, there were still faithful Church of God people in Antioch, but they ended up not being on the list. There were other leaders, and one of which we believe was Lucian of Antioch, who, as far as we can tell, held to several important Church of God doctrines. One is, he opposed the allegorical school of Alexandria, Egypt, and taught that the Bible should be understood more literally. Okay, that's something we in the continuing Church of God would agree with. Based on Roman Catholic-related writings associated with uh, Lucian, seemed to be a Sabbath keeper. And Seventh-day Adventists have uh, claimed, at least some of them have claimed he was a Sabbath keeper as well. And furthermore, he held a semi-Aryan or binitarian view of the Godhead, which we also hold. Well, anyway, I'm going to read what was called the Creed of Lucian. Now, the reality about this Creed of Lucian is it surfaced a couple of decades after he was martyred. Uh, so, uh, we don't know if this was the oldest fully written creed or not, but anyway, here's, here's what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, who is begotten of Him before all ages, the divine Logos, through whom all things were made, both those in the heavens and those on the earth, and who came down and was made flesh. That's something we need to continue Church of God teach. Jesus gave up His divinity and was made flesh, and suffered and rose again and ascended into the heavens, and shall come to judge the quick and the dead. See, it's very similar to this old Roman form. And in the Holy Ghost, and in the resurrection of the flesh, and in the life of the world to come. They're looking forward to the coming kingdom of God, in the, in the kingdom of heaven, and, and in one Catholic church of God, which extends to the ends of the earth. So, this is interesting, because the expression being used here in the Lucian Creed is, one Catholic Church of God. Now, Lucian at the time was not in communion with the Greco-Roman bishops of Antioch, even though they consider him a saint. Now, there's contradictory reports about him, and some say supposedly he reconciled the Greco-Romans while supposedly still maintaining his binitarianism, Sabbath-keeping, biblical literalism, etc., as far as I can tell, he looks to be a Church of God leader. And he probably held the succession mantle from around 275 until his martyrdom in around 312 AD. So, Lucian's creed is, I find, kind of interesting. And again, uh, we still have a, what appears to be a Church of God leader using the term uh, 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 Catholic Church of God. Now, the the later creed, called the Nicene Creed, was not an original creed, but it was declared to be a required belief by Emperor Theodosius in 380 AD. It got adopted later by the Council of Constantinople, which he called for the next year. So let me read something from the Encyclopedia Britannica about, the, about this. Theodosius. Out of political as well as religious motives, he energetically undertook to bring about the unity of faith within the empire. <laughs> oh, yeah, not the true faith. His position was improved by the fact that during 379, the followers of the Nicene Creed had gained ground, 
which again it wasn't uh, from the Council of Nicaea. We actually didn't have that Nicene Creed at that stage. They had they were putting it to one together, but it was not done in 325 A.D. Whereupon Theodosius, on February 28, 380, without consulting the ecclesiastical authorities, so he didn't bother to talk to, uh, uh, let's say, one who would be the Bishop of Rome or, or, or considered to be a pope, or the Patriarch of, of Constantinople or wherever else they had. He issued an edict prescribing a creed that was to be binding on all subjects. So that's where this creed came from. Uh, or at least its supposed forced acceptance came from there. And in 381, it was formally accepted by the Council of Constantinople, which Emperor uh, Theodosius convened. But that was a changed creed. It was not the original. Let's talk about Theodosius, the guy who added some other things to the creed, let's say some Trinitarian and other things. Well, in addition to being a persecutor of those who held the original Catholic date of Passover, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he actually decreed if you kept the same day of Passover that Church of God leaders and people such as Polycarp of Smyrna, it's considered a saint by the Greco-Romans, if you keep that day, you should have the death penalty. That's the kind of leader he was. Well, anyway, here's something written about his actions in 390 by a contemporary witness, a, a Greco-Roman theologian named uh, Theodoret. He reported, the emperor was fired with anger when he heard the news and unable to endure the rush of his passion, didn't even check its onset by the curb of reason, but allowed his rage to be the minister of his vengeance. When the imperial passion had received its authority as though itself an independent prince, it broke the bonds and yoke of reason, unsheathed swords of injustice right and left without distinction and slew innocent and guilty together. That's the kind of leader Theodosius was. No trial preceded the sentence. No, no condemnation was passed on the perpetrators of the crimes. Multitudes were mowed down like ears of grain in harvest tide. It's said that 7,000 perished. So he's the guy who did some certain things to Trinity. Theodosius pushed decisions of the council over scripture, and he did, certainly did not act like a true Christian would. And consider that in the early 2nd century, Polycarp of Smyrna wrote, For I trust you are well versed in, sacred, in the sacred scriptures. This is what he wrote to the church in uh, Philippi. You know, we read from the Apostle Paul, All scriptures given by inspiration of God to be instructed in righteousness and be complete. Polycarp, successors of the apostles, said, others that he was writing to were well versed in the scriptures. Why? Because true Christian beliefs or we use the term original Catholic beliefs come from the Bible not from councils of men who change them from what the Bible teaches. One of the things I'd like to go into is what were early church services like? Well they were scripture focused. I'm going to read something from a document called The Life of Polycarp. Now, Eusebius reported that Irenaeus said that Polycarp taught things in harmony with Scripture. And certainly the original church services or liturgy was like that. 
So anyway, this is following us from the, uh, a document called The Life of Polycarp. For he, Polycarp, would extend his discourse to great length and to different subjects. From the actual scripture which was read, he would furnish edification with all demonstrations and convictions. Now, I will be reading more, more scriptures in this sermon, and as you know, I tend to read lots of scriptures and sermons. Anyway, continuing from the life of Polycarp. And on the Sabbath, when prayer had been made long time on bended knee, he, as was his custom, got up to read, and every eye was fixed on him. Now the lesson was the epistle of Paul. So we see that Polycarp used scriptures. Uh, he went over things like epistles of Paul. Uh, we've done uh, various uh, sermons regarding them, like we did a full series on uh, uh, Galatians, for example. Furthermore, I'd like to read something related to uh, uh, Melito, Bishop of Sardis, or Pastor of Sardis. But before going further, understand that Polycarp was teaching on the Sabbath, that's Saturday, as in our modern calendars. Anyway, Melito, who's considered to be a Greco-Roman Church of God saint, said the following in a church service. First of all, the scripture about the Hebrews' exodus had been read, and the words of the mystery have been explained as to how the sheep was sacrificed and the people were saved. Now the reason this is of liturg liturgical interest is Melito was giving a second message that day, and he said that the Old Testament was being read before him. So he probably wasn't the only speaker. It's possible he spoke twice, but uh, we certainly from what we have from Melito show that there were two messages that were given. And that's consistent with what we do in the Continuing Church of God. We tend to have a short sermon that we call a sermonette and then a, long, a longer sermon. And sometimes we have a split sermon where both of them are about the same length. Now I'd like to uh, read something from a uh, Roman Catholic uh, writer. And this is uh, from an article called Christian Worship in the first century, uh, and this is uh, from January 17, 2020. The primary point of contact of our knowledge of the first century liturgy lie on one end with Jewish liturgies and with and little data which can be gleaned from the New Testament, and a few texts, reliable but vague, from the second, third centuries help us put together the puzzle. And that's one of the reasons why I've referred to things such as uh, Life of Polycarp and what Melito had to say, those from uh, the second, third centuries. Anyway, this next says, again, this is from the Roman Catholic source, the, the Judeo-centricity of early Christianity. About the first ten years of Christianity was almost exclusively composed of Jewish converts. The early Christians were in the habit of attending temple, Early Christians continued celebrating the synagogue alongside the Jews on the Sabbath for several years in some places. Up to 19 years after Christ's resurrection, new converts to Christianity, generally speaking, had to convert to Judaism before becoming Christian. Namely, they were to be circumcised, eat kosher, and to follow the Mosaic law. Anyway, continuing, this article says, Synaxis is a Greek word meaning meeting and is the organic continuity of the Saturday synagogue worship. When Christians were no longer allowed in the synagogues, they continued celebrating a 
approximately the same rite with added Christian developments and themes. The original liturgies would have been held like the synagogue services in Hebrew, and some of the words like Amen and Hallelujah survive to this day. In the early part of the first century, it's unlikely that the synaxis would have been recognizably different than from the synagogue surface, uh, uh, service, except for the fact it was not in a synagogue. Basic structure. Again, this is from a Roman Catholic source. Greeting and response. Lections and psalmody. Uh, the Jewish, the Jews read in order of descending importance, starting with the uh, first five books of the Bible. Early Christians kept the original order of the synagogue, but Christian, when Christian scriptures became available, it was tacked on at the end. And then eventually that changed, he says. So originally they always read the Old Testament stuff, Hebrew scriptures, then later uh, with New Testament toward the end, then they kind of went more uh, toward the New Testament. So, uh, uh, okay, well anyway, uh, getting back to this, basically what they've got is that they felt that it started off with an Old Testament reading, then uh, a psalm, then a New Testament reading, then a psalm, then a gospel reading, and then a sermon, and then dismissal uh, of some, and then of prayers, and then dismissal of everybody else. And uh, they said a collection would be taken for the poor at the end. We're not sure that happened all the time, but this was mentioned. Anyway, this conclude with this article it says by the end of the first century the standard Christian liturgical observation would be as follows on Saturday you would attend the Synaxis and I just explained what happened with the Synaxis now while some of what that Catholic writer wrote could be debated the original church services which he called Synaxis and by the way the word Synaxis means congregating they were on Saturday now in time the Greco-Romans developed uh, Sunday uh, with the Greeks uh, keeping some aspect of Saturday. But the faithful in Jerusalem, Asia Minor, Antioch, uh, held, held the Saturday. Now, in the continuing Church of God, similar to that previously listed liturgy that I went through, we've got three sets of hymns or psalms. And I'm holding up our Bible hymnal, by the way. And our hymnal is predominantly psalms uh, uh, set to music in English and then uh, some other uh, writings, mostly from uh, the New Testament. Anyway, we have uh, our, basically, our structure of our church services are we have an opening prayer, uh, songs, psalms mostly, sermonette, uh, then we'll have uh, announcements, then uh, another song, then a sermon, then another song and a prayer and dismissal. So what we do is very, very close to what that Catholic writer wrote. We believe our services are consistent with what early church services were like. And the, uh, the Greco-Roman churches and the Protestant churches uh, have deviated from that uh, quite a bit. Uh, by the way, uh, we are not Protestant, the continuing church of God. If you are Protestant or wonder about how we differ from Protestantism, we have a free book, Hope of Salvation, How the Continuing Church of God Differs from Protestantism. Our history, our doctrines, our beliefs, practices are not Protestant. And we precede the Protestant Reformation 
As a matter of fact, being the original church precedes any of the other breakoffs from uh, the true church. Now, despite the view of some uh, Roman Catholic traditionalists, the original church liturgy was not in Latin. As I read from the Catholic writer, it was in, probably in Hebrew, because that's how Jewish services were. And it didn't resemble a, 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 a Roman Catholic Mass. I'm going to read three Roman Catholic reports. Um, this is uh, from U.S. Catholic, this one. In the 3rd and 4th centuries A.D., Latin began to replace Greek as a common language of the Roman world and soon became the language of the liturgy. Exactly how this change in liturgy came about is uncertain. Because Christians had not used Latin for worship prior to this, words had to be adapted or imported, often from Greek, to express Christian ideas, beginning the development of the ecclesiastical form of Latin. There's also evidence that the Roman canon was influenced by prayers from the Eastern churches. Now here's something from the Catholic Encyclopedia. The word Mass, Misa, first established itself as the general designation for the Eucharistic sacrifice of the West after the time of Pope Gregory the Great, who died in 604. Mass goes back into a custom that takes us into the third century. So they're saying this Mass was not established until after the seventh century, sometime in the seventh century, but some aspects go into the third century. And here's something from mycatholicsource.com. Roman Mass and the established customs became ritualized over the centuries. As early as the fourth century, Fixed liturgical rites can be found in the church. So you've got the reality that a lot of the liturgy, the rituals in the liturgy that Romans use, came from the 4th century or later, maybe some from the 3rd century. Now, it's been said that uh, the Roman bishop Victor, uh, from 190 AD, used Latin. And that's possible he could have, and it makes sense because he's in Rome, and that's the language. But even at that time, it wouldn't be the original language of church services. And uh, again, as the Catholic Encyclopedia points out, it wasn't called Mass until the 7th century, and the rituals didn't pop up until maybe a few in the 3rd century, but most in the 4th century after exposure to Emperor Constantine. So what the... Uh, Greco-Romans used for liturgy, particularly the Romans in this case, was not the original liturgy. But we in the Continuing Church of God hold to the original liturgy. I mentioned the Greek Orthodox. What about them? Well, they freely admit that theirs changed. This is from uh, St. Tekin's Orthodox Theological Seminary. Uh, journal, if you will, uh, from the fall of 2008. This is, again, related to the Eastern Orthodox. The liturgical practices of the church at Antioch did not stagnate. So what they're saying is, okay, the original practices that people like Ignatius and uh, Theophilus and Serapion, who are Church of God leaders, did not stagnate. That means they changed them. So it says, the liturgical practice of the church at Antioch did not stagnate, as does, near, as does every early tradition of the church. The liturgy continued to expand in content and uh, meaning. So they changed it. 
I wrote, if you're Eastern Orthodox, you're watching this and you think your church did not change and that you have the beliefs of the original Catholic Church, I urge you to read this. Or if you know someone who's Eastern Orthodox who's convinced, if they're willing to accept the truth, you may recommend a book like this, or just specifically book, a specific book to them. Anyway, the original church liturgy did not have much in resemblance to uh, Eastern Orthodox services. They begin and end with the signing of the cross, and that was not something that early Christians did. And unlike the Eastern Orthodox churches, of which I've been in many of them, there were, there were no icons, incense, signing of crosses, or leavened bread as part of the original church services. Nor chanting sermons, nor hymns sung to Mary. Uh, none of the known current Eastern Orthodox uh, litanies or petitions recited by the clergy and responding, having people respond, whatever, were originally used by early Christians either, as far as we can tell. As I said, we in the Continuing Church of God hold to the original uh, Catholic Church practices when it comes to the liturgy, which is you speak in a language people understand, you don't have rituals that people uh, are not, that were not biblically required, we don't have uh, crosses, we don't have icons, we have church services, messages based on the Bible and biblical truth. Now, I mentioned baptism. I was going to cover that. What about baptism? Let's go to uh, Acts chapter 5. Oh, uh, um, let's go to Acts 2. I'm sorry. We'll go to Acts 2, verse 38. I'm going to read this from the New Jerusalem Bible, which is the Roman Catholic accepted translation. Acts 2, verse 38. You must repent. Peter answered, and every one of you must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I mentioned Acts 5.32, and part of what that says, by the way, was the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey Him. So we see we're supposed to repent, uh, be baptized in the name of Jesus, and receive the Holy Spirit, which you will get if you obey Him. Infants, of course, they can't repent and they can't obey God. Now, I'd like to read something that the 20th century Franciscan leader by the name of Jean Briand reported. Authors of old only described adult baptism. And this is from the uh, Franciscan Printing Press, 1982, out of Jerusalem. Now, after reviewing documents and other evidence, the, the late Roman Catholic scholar and priest uh, Bugatti correctly concluded that Judeo-Christians, the original Christians, did not baptize infants. He said, why? Following the example of the Lord, he said. Now, the uh, Roman Catholic Church uh, admits that immersion was the original practice uh, of baptism, and they did not use baptismal fonts like they now do. Now, this is going to be from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This is from the article called Baptismal Font. In the apostolic age, when the original apostles were around, as in Jewish times, baptism was administered without special fonts at the seaside or in streams or pools of water. They cite Acts 8.38 
and also John 3.23. Tertullian refers to St. Peter's baptizing in the Tiber River. Similarly, in later periods of uh, evangelization, oh, they're claiming that Peter baptized people in the river. Okay, not that he was baptized there. Missionaries baptized in rivers, as is narrated of St. Paulus of England by Bede. Okay, so that's one thing from a Roman Catholic source. Now we read some from the Catholic Encyclopedia also, but this is on the article Baptism. The word baptism is derived from the Greek word bapto, or baptizo, to wash or immerse. It signifies, therefore, that washing is of the essential idea of the sacrament. The most ancient form usually employed was unquestionably immersion. Unquestionably, that's what early Christians did. That's from the Catholic Encyclopedia. This is not only evident from the writings of the fathers and the early rituals of both the Latin and Oriental churches, but it can also be gathered from the epistles of St. Paul, who speaks of baptism as bath, Ephesians 5.26, Romans 6.4, Titus 3.5. In the Latin church, immersion seems to have prevailed until the 12th century. After that time, it is found in some places even as late as the 16th century. Infusion and aspersion, however, were growing common in the 13th century and gradually prevailed in the Western Church. The Oriental churches have retained immersion. So the Church of Rome is saying that, yeah, the original practice was immersion, and we did immersion, but in time people started to go away from that, and eventually we, we got rid of that. Now, let me read something from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Catechism item number 1214. The sacrament is called baptism, after the central rite by which it is carried out. Greek, baptizien, means to plunge or immerse. The plunge into water symbolizes the catechumen burial into Christ's death, from which he rises by resurrection with him as a new creature. So we see from Catholic sources that immersion is what baptism means. It was unquestionably the biblical practice. And even Rome did it, uh, Church of Rome and its uh, uh, various other associated churches were, d were doing that, uh, and then finally basically switched. Now, because some churches baptize infants, as well as for general convenience, baptism kind of became sprinkling. And that's also done by uh, various Protestants. Now, we, the Canadian Church of God, are not Protestant. Again, I held this book up before, available at the ccog.org website. Give more details as to that. And we do the original practice of baptism by immersion, and we don't baptize infants. Now, I want to read something that the Flemish Roman Catholic theologian named Jodocus Taltanus, he's sometimes now called Josie Ravistein, admitted in a book written in 1567 against the Confession of Preachers of Antwerp. Here's what uh, this Roman Catholic leader said. We are not satisfied with that which the apostles or the gospels do declare. But we say that, as well as before as after, there are different matters of importance and weight accepted and received out of doctrine, which is nowhere set forth in writing. Now, I read from 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, but doctrine coming from the Bible, and this Catholic leader, 
in the 16th century saying, yes, the stuff's now we're set forth in writing. For we bless the water, we, we baptize, and the oil where we anoint. Yea, besides that, him that is christened, about what scripture have we learned that same? Have we not of a secret and unwritten ordinance? Okay, so they didn't get it from the Bible. Secret unwritten ordinance. And further, what scripture has taught us to grease with oil? Yes, I pray whence comes. Why do we dip the child three times in that water? Does it not come out of the hidden and undisclosed doctrine, which our forefathers have received closely without any curiosity, and do observe it still? So he's saying that it doesn't come from the Bible, what, we, what they're doing. And we're not really sure where he got it, but somebody got it, and because somebody got it from some secret thing, we, we still do it. So they know this stuff wasn't from Scripture. Now, I'd like to read something from the second century. Now, this is from a Greco-Roman saint called Irenaeus. And this is something he wrote about apostates uh, like the Valentinians, about their heretical views regarding baptism and their views about Scripture. Irenaeus wrote, They gather their views from sources other than Scripture. In doing so, however, they disregard the order and connection of the Scriptures and, so far as in them lies, dismember and destroy the truth by transferring passages and dressing them up anew, making one thing out of another. They succeed in diluting many through their wicked art of adapting the oracles of the Lord to their opinions. There are of them who assert that it's superfluous to bring people to the water, but mixing oil and water together, they place this mixture on the heads of those who are about to be initiated with the use of some expressions, as we have already mentioned. And this they maintain to be the redemption. So we've got Irenaeus condemning this oil mixture, yet we've got a Roman Catholic leader saying it came from some secret ordinance. Well, perhaps the secret ordinance came from the Valentinians. Valentinus, by the way, was denounced by Polycarp of Smyrna, who was a Church of God leader. He denounced the one or the people, one who's led the people who said, oh yeah, we need to mix oils with, with this and do all these kind of things. You don't have to go to a lake or a river or the ocean to be, or sea to be baptized in. Okay? So think about that if you're a Greco-Roman Catholic, where your practices came from. It didn't come from the Bible. It came from a heretic. Uh, this, this particular one came from a heretic who was denounced by Polycarp. Now, should infants be baptized? Well, the Bible never shows that they were. And there's no record of the original fathers, as they called them, endorsing infant baptism. Uh, Greco-Romans changed from the beginning. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia admits that infant baptism was based on tradition and not from the Scripture. Let me read something from... Uh, something called Tradition and Living Magisterium. This is in the Catholic Encyclopedia, that article. Divine traditions not contained in Holy Scripture. The designation of unwritten divine traditions was not always given all the clearness desirable, especially in early times. However, Catholic controversialists soon proved to the Protestants that to be logical and consistent, they must admit unwritten traditions as revealed. Otherwise, by what right 
did, did they rest on Sunday, not Saturday? So the Roman Catholics are saying, Protestants, you get this going to church on Sunday from the Bible. And how could Protestants regard infant baptism as valid or baptism by infusion? And by the way, Martin Luther did uh, support infant baptism. We go into that, that here, even though it's not biblical. He did that. He didn't get it from the Bible either. He didn't believe in sola scriptura. This is documented here in other places. How could they permit the taking of an oath since Christ had commanded that we not swear at all? And Protestants do that all the time. Now here's something else that's Catholic. The Quakers are more logical in refusing all oaths. The Anabaptists in rebaptizing adults. The Sabbatarians in resting on Saturday. But they also comment that they don't know any church that does all of that in the Catholic Encyclopedia. And well, one that does is the uh, the CCOG does does them. Okay, the Church of God throughout history. We go to church on Saturday. We don't baptize infants. Uh, we don't swear oaths, uh, etc. We are consistent on that, unlike the Protestants. Now, getting back to baptism, as I mentioned before, Acts 2.38 says it requires repentance, and you know, life itself shows us infants can't do that. And so we don't violate Scripture to baptize infants. Now, even though it's known that uh, early professors of Christ didn't baptize infants, the Greco-Romans changed their mind in the early, uh, sometime in the late 2nd century, probably early 3rd century, to accept infant baptism. I'm going to read something from the Catholic Encyclopedia article on baptism. Infant baptism. The Waldensians, the Waldensians and Cathari, and later the Anabaptists, rejected the doctrine that infants are capable of receiving valid baptism. And some sectarians at the present day hold that same opinion. So this is kind of interesting because what they're saying is they knew that some who could have been associated with the Church of God, so the Waldenses, Cathari, and uh, Anabaptists, were post-infant baptism. So it's not some new thing that we need to continue in Church of God put out. The reality is the Church of God has opposed this throughout history. Now, as far as children go, the Apostle Paul taught that they were sanctified if even one parent is a true Christian. You can read that in 1 Corinthians 7.14. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that Jesus blessed little children. And it seems to be from a misunderstanding of that practice that some have said you should do this unbiblical thing of infant baptism. Matter of fact, Jesus' practice of blessing children is actually used in Catholic Encyclopedia article on baptism to justify infant baptism. But that's not what Jesus did. He did not baptize infants. He put his hands on infants. He did not dip them in water. He didn't sprinkle water on their heads or make crosses on their heads or anything along that line. Following Jesus' example, we in the continuing church of God do bless little children. We lay hands on them, but we don't baptize them. We are consistent with the practices of Jesus and the early church. Now, some have raised this idea about Polycarp being baptized as an infant and killed when he was uh, 86. But 
the reality is some people misunderstand how old Polycarp was. As far as how long he lived, I'm going to read something from a uh, third century document known as the Harris Fragments. There remained after him, after John, a disciple named Polycarp, and he made, and John made him bishop over Smyrna. Polycarp is an old man, being 104 of age. He continued to walk in the canons which he'd learned from his youth from John the Apostle. Well, where did people get that Polycarp died when he was 86? When he, the day he was being martyred, Polycarp said, For 86 years I've been Jesus' servant, and he's done me no wrong. So people have assumed that meant he was baptized when he was born, and that's not the case. If you take uh, 104, subtract 86, you find out he was baptized at age 18. And I've read from some Roman Catholic sources that, you know, Polycarp uh, was baptized an infant by John. This proves infant baptism from the beginning, from the apostles. No, it does not, because Polycarp was not uh, 86 when he died. And this is simply not the case. And he had to, by the way, in case people wonder, he had to be over in 86 to be appointed bishop by any of the original apostles if this happened when he was around 40 years or so of age. And uh, the Coptic Orthodox say he was appointed when he was 40. And if he only lived to age 86, the uh, apostles would have been dead by the time he was uh, 40. <laughs> so, anyway, and I won't go through more details of that. We have uh, a message about, uh, a sermon about uh, uh, poly, what kind of Catholic Polycarp was, and I go into that in a little bit more depth. And even Irenaeus, by the way, wrote that Polycarp lived a very long time. He wrote, Polycarp was not only instructed by the apostles and conversed with many who had seen the Christ, but was also by the apostles in Asia appointed bishop of the church in Smyrna, whom I also saw in my early youth. He tarried on the earth a very long time. <clears throat> he was a very old man, gloriously and most notably suffering martyrdom. Very old man, consistent with being 104 Anyway, Polycarp's example does not support uh, infant baptism. Early Christians tended to call the bread and wine ceremony uh, Passover, because they held it on Passover. Uh, and since actually many used Greek, they, also, they actually called it Pascha, uh, when they're using Greek. Now, the Greek Orthodox still call Passover Pascha, which is a transliteration of a word uh, in the uh, New Testament. Yet the uh, Church of Rome, at least for the English language and uh, some other languages, use the term Easter. Now the term Eucharist, meaning Thanksgiving, was also sometimes used by early Christians. Now I'd like to read something from the uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, and then I'm going to go into some scriptures. This is Catechism item number 1339. Jesus chose the time of the Passover, and he took bread, and he had given thanks, he broke it, and gave it to them. Now that's scriptural. So let's see some of the scriptures. Let's go to Mark 14. Verse 22, I'm sorry. 
And whilst they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessing, broke, and gave it to them, and said, Take ye, this is my body. That's in the Dewey Rames. If you want to flip back to the book of Matthew, Matthew 26, plan on reading verses 19 and 26, also from the Dewey Rames Bible, Roman Catholic accepted translation. Matthew 26, 19, And the disciples did as Jesus appointed to them, and they prepared the Pasch, or Passover. Verse 26, And whilst they were at supper, Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take ye and eat, this is my body. You don't have to go there, but also read something similar. Luke 22, verse 19, again from the Dewey Rames Bible. And taking bread, he, that's Jesus, gave thanks, and break and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given to you. Do this for a commemoration of me. Now, the Bible is very clear that Jesus broke bread on Passover. And I wanted to read this from three Roman Catholic from translations of the Gospels to show that, look, from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Roman Catholic translation said, Jesus broke bread, and this is what you're supposed to keep doing. Now, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm also going to go to Dewey Rames Bible. This will be verse 16. And this is from the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> the chalice of benediction which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? And the bread which we break, is it not the partaking of the body of the Lord? Now, let's go, if you're in 1 Corinthians 10, let's go to chapter 11, start in verse 23, also from the Dewey Rames Bible, I'm going to be reading. For I've received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he betrayed, took bread, and giving thanks, broke he broke the bread and said, Take ye and eat. This is my body which shall be delivered to you. This do for the commemoration of me. We in the continuing church of God still break bread as part of the Passover ceremony. Jesus said to do it. Apostle Paul said Jesus said to do it. Uh, uh, Apostle Matthew said to do it. Mark said to do it. Luke said to, Jesus said to do it. We still do it. We hold to the original practice. You know, Apostle Paul followed Jesus' practice and he broke bread. Now I want to read something from a Catholic encyclopedia. They have an article called Host, which is what they uh, now use for their communion Passover ceremony. The first Christians simply used the bread that served as food. It seemed that the form differed little from what it is in our day. Well, the original Christian observance of Passover involved unleavened bread, wine, and foot washing on the 14th day of the first month of the biblical calendar known as uh, Nisan or Abib. And this was continued by Christians in Judea and those in Asia Minor, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia article on Easter. It was considered to be a commemoration of Christ being the Passover lamb slain for us. And it was not a resurrection holiday on that day, according to the Catholic Encyclopedia article on Easter as well. 
Why do I keep talking about the Catholic Encyclopedia article? To show anyone who watches, we're not just making this stuff up. When we need to continue in Church of God say the, what the original practices were, and what the original Catholic practices were, we have them, and we still have them. And the scholars of Church of Rome know that they don't. Actually, one of the things I actually like as a researcher is that you'll find Roman Catholic scholars admitting all kinds of truths where Catholic scholars will do that. Some, well, all scholars do that to some degree. But when you compare it to Protestant scholars who try to pretend that they use Sola Scriptura. Now, the Roman Catholics don't even pretend that. They don't pretend that they use Sola Scriptura. They don't pretend that all the practices came from the beginning. Yet, you talk to the average lay member of the Greek Orthodox or Roman Catholic churches, they think that their practices are all original. They get that impression from various things that various priests or bishops or whatever have said to them and some of the things they've read. But if you actually go and look at what the scholars say, and you know what you're, particularly if you know what you're looking for, you can find that they will admit that what they're doing is not the original practice. Anyway, there's this ancient document that's called the Didache. And uh, in its present form, it looks like it probably came from the 2nd century. Anyway, let me read what it says. Now concerning the thanksgiving, or the Eucharist, thus give thanks. First, concerning the cup. We thank you, our Father, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you have made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. And concerning the broken bread... We thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you have made known to us through Jesus, your, sa your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together to become one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. But let no man eat or drink of your thanksgiving, but they who have been baptized in the name of the Lord... For concerning this also the Lord has said, Give not which is holy to the dogs. Well, this is clearly referring to Jesus' last Passover and keeping Passover, and that only baptized people were supposed to participate, which is a practice that we, the Continuing Church of God, do. And since infants don't get baptized because they can't repent, they don't participate in it as well. And again, it talks about breaking of the bread. Now, I want to go back to 1 Corinthians 11, read some more things from the Apostle Paul. And he says, uh, this is from the Eastern Orthodox Bible translation, starting verse 27, 1 Corinthians 11. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks the Lord's cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let everyone do a self-examination, and then eat the bread and the cup, drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if such a one does not discern the body of the Lord. So only people who have examined themselves, etc., and they're supposed to do it correctly, in the correct way, which we use broken, unleavened bread. Anyway, now let's go to 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Just to read one verse. This will be from Dewey Rames. Try yourselves if you be in the faith. Prove 
you yourselves. Know that you are not your own selves, that Christ is, Jesus is in you, unless perhaps you're reprobates. Well, since only truly baptized people can examine themselves, only they can participate in the Passover or the Eucharist. And again, that couldn't possibly be uh, infants. Now, I'd like to read some things from the 2nd century Church of God leader, Ignatius of Antioch, who's also considered to be a saint by the Greco-Romans, is actually on the succession list uh, that the uh, Eastern Orthodox have for Antioch, even though uh, Ignatius held to Church of God doctrines uh, more than uh, uh, you would call um, Greco-Roman doctrines. Anyway, in his letter to the Ephesians, Ignatius wrote, Take heed then, often to come together to give thanks to God, and show forth his praise. So his letter to the Philippians, no, the uh, Philadelphians, I'm sorry, he said, Take heed, then, to have but one Eucharist, there is one flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ, and one cup. Show forth the unity of his blood, one altar is one bishop, along with one presbyterian deacons, my fellow servants. That, so whatever you do, you may be... You may do it according to the will of God. And the will of God, for example, for the Passover service is to use regular bread. Now this is from his letter to the Smyrnians. See that ye all follow the bishop, even as Jesus Christ says the Father, and the presbytery as you would the apostles, in reverence to deacons as being the institution of God. Let no man do anything connected with the church without the bishop. Let let that be deemed the proper Eucharist, which is administered either by the bishop or by one he's entrusted to it. So Passover service would be one that uh, the pastor uh, would either do or entrust others to do. Also, uh, in his uh, letters, basically he says you're supposed to do what church government says, but it's also consistent with Scripture. Now, in the second century, it was reported that Passover was an annual event, not a daily Eucharist or weekly Mass Eucharist, and it was held at night. The Eastern Orthodox realized that is so as well. I'm going to read something from an Eastern Orthodox priest. Uh, Pascha is the Feast of Universal Redemption. Our earliest sources for the annual celebration of the Christian Pascha come to us from the 2nd century. So, we, of course, we have the Bible, the New Testament, which came from the 1st century. Then we have sources in the 2nd century to talk us about, tell us about it, like Ignatius I just read. The feast, however, must have originated in the apostolic period. According to the earliest documents, Pascha is described as a nocturnal celebration. Yes, Passover was kept at night, after sunset on the 14th of the first month. And we, the continuing Church of God, still keep Passover annually, at night and at time. I'd like to read something from the Apostle John. I'm going to read this from two translations. This is going to be 1 John 2.19. This is from the uh, 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 Dewey Rames of the, the 19, Rames New Testament of 1582. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have surely remained with us. But that they, they may be manifest, they are not of us. Okay, now I want to read the same verse from the Eastern Orthodox Bible translation. 1 John 2.19 
They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. If they had belonged to us, they would have continued with us. But in fact, they left so that it might be revealed that none belonged to us. Now, why would I bring this up here? Because one of the first documented changes between the practice of the Apostle John and what became the Greco-Roman Confederation was a change to the date of Passover, as well as the time of Passover, as well as many practices associated with Passover. Essentially because of uh, Imperial Rome's reaction to uh, Jewish Barcovo revolt, many in Rome and Alexandria and Jerusalem compromised and they stopped keeping Passover on the 14th. And the uh, bishop of Rome by the name of Victor wanted to push Sunday date for everyone. And in around 192, uh, Polycrates of Ephesus, a Church of God leader, wrote to uh, Bishop Victor and said, look, we observe the exact day. We don't add or take away from it. For nation minor, great lights have fallen asleep. They'll arise on the day of the Lord's coming. Among these are Philip, one of the twelve apostles, his two aged virgin daughters, Moreover, John, who was a witness and a teacher, who reclined in the bosom of the Lord, he, he fell asleep in Ephesus, and Polycarp of Smyrna, who was a bishop and martyr, Thracius, uh, fell asleep in Smyrna, then says the martyr Sigaris, the blessed Papyrus, uh, Melito, uh, they're all awaiting the Episcopal from heaven when they die, when they are resurrected. They all observed the, pass, the 14th day of Passover according to the gospel, deviating in no respect but following the rule of faith. And I also, Plercrates, the least of all of you, following the tradition of my relatives, some of which I have closely followed, I who have uh, observed the day, we observed the day when the people put out the leaven. Therefore, brethren, who have li lived I've lived 85, 65 years in the Lord and have met, lived with brethren throughout the world. I've gone through every holy scripture. I'm not afraid from frightening words and try to scare us to not to change because those greater than I have said we must obey God rather than men. And I could mention the great number of bishops who were with me who agree and they wanted me to write Understanding, I didn't gray, get, bear my gray hairs in vain, but I've been always had my life governed by the Lord Jesus. So, Plicrates mentioned a bunch of Church of God leaders. They were keeping Passover on the 14th, and that's something that uh, we still do today. Now, some people like to say that uh, uh, Victor was trying to make everybody conform, and uh, but. Some people have concluded that, no, what Victor had tried to do was to tell people in the area of Rome who would not listen to the Bishop of Rome winding Passover on Sunday. And basically, a Roman Catholic scholar, and when he was a member of the Pontifical Historical Commission, by a guy by the name of Iman Duffy, said that, uh, no, this was not Victor trying to tell the Church of Asia Minor what to do. Instead, what happened is he was trying to tell people in the area of Rome what to do, and some of them wrote to Asia Minor. And basically because it had to do with fragments of this bread being sent a long way, it would have gotten moldy, so he said, uh, no. He says, uh, Victor was, uh, was not trying to uh, get rid of the people in Asia Minor, but people who had the Asian views in Rome. 
And this is something uh, Iman Duffy wrote. And I think that makes a certain amount of sense. But anyway, it should be made clear that in the second century, Polycarp and others listed Polycrates, they were not the Greco-Roman type of uh, uh, Catholic. The reality is that there's a lot of things that people just don't understand about what the beliefs of the early church were. Um, I'd like to also mention that uh, early Roman Catholics do know that the ones they call early fathers kept Passover on the 14th. Uh, there was a, a matter concerning what day should be observed over in uh, the British Isles. Uh, they were keeping uh, the 14th. And uh, if you go read a book uh, written by one known as uh, the Venerable Bede, I think it was the 9th century, basically he said that uh, the, the people there admitted that the Apostle John and the early church were fairly Jewish, and that the Apostle John kept Passover on the 14th. And they claimed that uh, uh, Peter somehow changed it, but we don't have any evidence that that happened. And what the other part that's interesting, if you read Bede's writings, and he quotes a guy by the name of Abbot uh, Wilfred, and he said that the Passover service was at night. Uh, and, but, but because it was kept at, on a Saturday night, now they keep it Sunday morning. And it would make no sense that John and Peter, who traveled with each other back and forth together, would have kept uh, different days. And, you know, the Apostle John in 1 John 2.19 warned about those who were not keeping the original practices. And one of the first documented changes that we have that, that shows a difference between, let's call it the Greco-Roman Confederation and the uh, Church of God Catholics, had to do with the date of Passover. And I'd like to uh, also mention that you've got other leaders that the Greco-Romans considered saints, like Apollinaris. He was a quarter deciman. Uh, he kept Passover on the 14th. And so was Apollinaris of uh, Heropolis. Matter of fact, he wrote, The 14th day is the true Passover of the Lord, the great sacrifice, the Son of God instead of the Lamb, who is bound, who bound the strong, who is judged, so judge the living and the dead. Sounds like a statement from that creed. Who was delivered into the hands of the sinners to be crucified, was lifted up, and the horns of the unicorn was pierced uh, on his holy side, forth from his side, two purifying elements, water and blood, word and spirit, and was buried on the day of the Passover, the stone being placed at the tomb. Well, keeping Passover was certainly... Uh, practice the original church. Now I should mention that those who are into a, a, a daily, weekly, monthly, or quarterly uh, Eucharist might be surprised that even the Roman Emperor Constantine uh, was opposed to that. He actually wrote, we would never tolerate celebrating the Passover twice in one year. One day has our Savior set apart for a commemoration of our deliverance. Now even though he wanted Sunday. He did understand that Passover is only supposed to be once a year. 
Now, the Catechism of the Catholic Church claims that in the Council of Nicaea in 325, all churches agreed that the Christian Passover would be celebrated on Sunday. Now, the Catholic Encyclopedia says, agreed that Easter, the Christian Passover, would be celebrated on Sunday following the first full moon. So they have Easter then, but it's supposed to be uh, Passover, but they also do a, a more of a daily Eucharist as opposed to, uh, or as well as weekly, as opposed to just annually. But the idea that uh, they indicate all churches agreed to this is not true. According to Roman Catholic scholars, the Church of God, the churches were not invited or did not attend. Uh, as a matter of fact, it, uh, that, that's, that's pretty clear. So um, I've got more sources in, in this book on that. I'm not going to take the time to read it. Even the Roman Catholic supporting Epiphanius noted sometime after the council, the court of decimans, people kept Passover on the 14th, contentionally keep Passover uh, one day once per year. They keep Passover every day the 14th of the month falls. Christ had to be slain the 14th of the month according to the law. And Epiphanius says that, uh, also said that God's holy church does not miss the truth. Oh, it fixed the day of this mystery. She uses not only the 14th day, but also seven days that occur in the week. She uses not only the 14th day of the lunar month, but the course of the sun as well. We observe the 14th day, but then we wait until after the equinox and bring it to the end to the sacred Lord's day. So Epiphanius is saying that We keep the, the Greco-Romans keep the 14th, but they keep it on a Sunday sometime after the 14th, which is what they do, but they don't keep it on the 14th. And he even admits something else. He was complaining about a group called the Audians. They continue to celebrate the Passover with the Jews. They contentionally celebrate at the same time the Jews are holding the festival of unleavened bread. But this is the interesting part, Epiphanius says. Indeed, this used to be the church's custom. The audience tell churchmen, you've abandoned the Father's Paschal rite in Constantine's time and uh, uh, changed the date to suit the emperor. So the audience were saying, early church fathers kept Passover the 14th, you, and you guys changed it because of, uh, uh, because of the fact that uh, Constantine wanted it uh, changed and others did. And Epiphanius said that uh, there was quarreling over the date after the time of the circumcised bishops, which means he says starting sometime after, sometime in the mid to late second century, there was an argument about when the uh, Passover should be. But that means he understands that up until 135 A.D. there was no question. Everybody was keeping who called themselves Christian were keeping Passover. They were doing it on the 14th, which we the continuing Church of God. Uh, do. Epiphanius said there were uh, 15 bishops from the circumcision and they celebrated one. They were all in one accord in the one festival. And so they kept it and so we still do that as, as well. And I mentioned the uh, about Theodosius in his edict against the heretics, he decreed that capital punishment would go on those who kept Passover on the 14th. And that was a practice of the original church. And uh, you would think that uh, no one who claimed Christianity could do such a thing. 
what Theodosius uh, did. He was a persecutor. As far as uh, the term Easter goes, uh, centuries after the compromisers switched to Sunday, uh, they started to use the term uh, Easter in some Teutonic languages like English and German. Now, Easter was the name of a Babylonian uh, sex goddess, uh, spelled Ishtar, I-S-H-T-A-R, but tends to be pronounced Easter. And Ishtar was the uh, queen of heaven, and she was celebrated in the spring by the pagans. And there were a lot of non-biblical or pagan, uh, there were pagan things associated with this, similar to what people do in terms of uh, Easter. Uh, the term Easter came from paganism, and that's confirmed by the Catholic Encyclopedia. It says the Easter term, according to the Venerable Bede, uh, refers to Estre, the Teutonic goddess of the rising of the light day and of spring, which is a deity. Now, some believe instead of it being each star, the Babylonian goddess, it came from Eo Estre, or Astara. She was a bringer of light, the goddess of the dawn. She's sometimes called the queen of heaven. She's celebrated every spring. She looks to be a, a tie to Easter sunrise services, uh, which is different from the Bible, which Passover was right after sunset, not just before sunrise. Uh, uh, Eostre is also associated with rabbits. Her favorite flower was the rose, which is also the flower that uh, Roman Catholics associate with uh, their version of Mary. Various researchers, such as uh, the late 19th century scholar L.L.C. Hamilton, taught that Ishtar was both the Astarte of 1 Kings 1133, uh, as uh, also condemned, who was condemned in the Old Testament, as well as the Eoestre of the uh, Germans. Now, whether it was from originally a Babylonian goddess or a German one, or some combination of both, Easter is certainly not a term for our savior of a pagan goddess. And items such as hot cross buns would not have been used by uh, early Christians for various reasons, including the fact that they kept the Days of Eleven bread. And they wouldn't have been using that. Days of Eleven bread come right after Passover. And the Bible warns against making uh, similar cakes to the Queen of Heaven. So in summary, for what we're going over today, if you want to know what the original beliefs, the original Christian beliefs, original Catholic beliefs were, it should come from this book. You can also look at writings of people that are considered to be saints by the Church of God, as well as many considered to be saints by the Greco-Roman Protestants, as far as what they taught to find out what the original Church taught. When it comes to the original creed, of uh, the original creed, the old Roman form, or the creed of Lucian, are consistent with what we teach in the continuing Church of God. If you're looking at the original church liturgy, how church services were, same basic format that we follow today in the continuing Church of God. If you go to baptism, we baptize by immersion. We don't use the oil and grease. We don't baptize infants. And that's what the original church did as well. And in terms of Passover, we keep it at night. We use broken bread. We don't use uh, a rounded, unbroken host. Uh, we do it at night, and we don't keep Easter, and we do it once a year. We in the Continuing Church of God do believe what this book says, but if you want more to know more about the original doctrines of the true church, or the beliefs of the original Catholic Church, you can check out our free book at www.
www.csug.org. This is Dr. Bob Teal for the Continuing Church of God.